Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. Y'all stand with us. Let's sing it out. You can put your hands together with us if you'd like to. Let's sing it out together. I'll give you all my worship. I'll give you all my praise. You alone, I want to worship.
Father, we come to you as a, as a people confessing that we have suppressed the truth, that, that your power and your might and your goodness are obvious. They're stamped all over the world that you've made, but we so often deny it and we seek salvation and we seek, seek security and other things. So Father, we confess that to you this morning. We confess our weakness. We confess our brokenness. We confess that we cannot do it on our own. We are, we're gathered here, Lord, not just to worship you because you're great, but also to seek your forgiveness and your restoration. We're here to seek you lifting us up and drawing us back to yourself. And so, Father, we confess that we are sinners, and we also confess that you are a gracious, saving God that poured out your wrath not on us, but on your son on the cross. 
that we could have salvation, so that we could be lifted up to you. And we pray that you'd continue to do that and that we would continue to see you for how great and glorious you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a new one. I'm just singing this out with us. This is a just a song of brokenness and, and repentance. So sing this with us.
refuge for the poor, a shelter from the storm. This is our God. He will wipe away your tears and return your wasted years. This is our God. It's called upon His name. He is mighty to save. This is our You are our God. 
Jesus died my soul to save my lips just still ring Let's stand as a church and sing Jesus faded all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow sin had left a crimson stain he washed it
we, we stand in awe of your mercy to us. God, that through your, your son's pain, we are made whole. God, and we are brought to you. God, I pray that you help us to live as your children, God, that we will, that we will bear your name and share your story with everyone that we see. Help us to be people who love well. It's your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. If you all will open your Bibles to Matthew 20, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew 20, or if you don't have one, you can grab one of the Bibles under the uh, chairs. We have some black Bibles under the chairs that you can grab, and we're on page 825 in those Bibles, and uh, we still have room up front, too, if there's people in the back that need space. Um, we've been working through Matthew and looking at the idea of, of kingdom come, that, that in Jesus the kingdom has come, and that it didn't come exactly like they thought it would, right? It was, it was different. That he is both the conquering king, but also the suffering servant. And that's been working itself out. And this week we find ourselves in uh, the Palm Sunday, traditionally in the church calendar. This is the Palm Sunday week, the, what's called the triumphal entry. And this is where Jesus com comes in, excuse me, comes into Jerusalem as the king presenting himself uh, to Jerusalem and to Israel. And we've titled the sermon this morning, Seeing the King. Because what we're going to see is, is kind of an irony here how the outsiders, those that normally you wouldn't expect to recognize the king, recognized him. And those that were the religious people, those that were the insiders, uh, often don't recognize him. And, and so we're going to see Jesus presenting himself and see how certain people see him and, and other people sadly don't see him. And I read earlier from uh, Romans chapter 1, and in Romans 1 we see this, this concept played out that... That although God has made himself very plain in the world, we still uh, suppress that reality. And, and we often refuse to see him, even though we can see him. We can see him in the world. His, his fingerprints are all over everything he's made, but, but we often suppress that. We don't want to deal with him, and we suppress that truth. And it tells us that in Romans 1, where it says, What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And the scriptures say in the beginning of that section that the wrath of God is being revealed against this ungodliness, that really at the root of our, any bad thing, any wickedness, any sin we ever commit, at the root of that is denying God, it is refusing to worship Him, refusing to enjoy Him, refusing to see Him as our salvation, as our security, as our only hope, as our only joy. And, and as a result of that, refusing him, that, that leads to every other sin. Everything else that there is out there is really just a result of us refusing to see him. And so this morning, our text, I think, is calling us to see him. Here he is. He's come. Let's, let's look at him. Let's see who he really is. So we're going to start in uh, 20, verse 29, towards the end of, of chapter 20. And then we'll read through the first 11 verses of chapter 21. So if you want, you can follow along with us. Chapter 20, verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. 
two blind men were sitting by the roadside. Okay, I'm going to stop there already. I just want to make a comment for those of you that are, that are well-versed and have read the other Gospels. Matthew is giving us a slightly different version of the story here. And uh, these kinds of things don't bother me too much, but I know that sometimes these questions can stick in your mind and, and can distract you. Um, there were two Jerichos in the first century. There was the old broken-down Jericho, and there was the new Jericho that the Roman Empire had rebuilt a few miles out. And so the best explanation for me uh, of this difference in the text between this story and the other stories is that there were two Jerichos. Because this one says, as they were leaving Jericho, and the Gospels talk about as he was returning to Jericho or as he was going into Jericho. You know, so people come to the story and they're like, okay, which was it? You know, is, is this a conflict in the scriptures? Um, and that's, to me, the best explanation that makes sense of that. There were two Jerichos. So there, one was talking about, Matthew's probably talking about the Jewish Jericho, the old city, and the other writer's talking about the Roman Jericho, and they were right close to each other. Um, also, Matthew tells us that two blind men were sitting by the roadside. The other gospel accounts just talk about one blind man, and one of them even gives us his name, Bartimaeus. And uh, again, when you tell stories, often we all focus on what we think is the important part of the story. Matthew continually gives us more details than the gospel of Mark, um, and tends to sometimes give us some different details, but he usually just gives us more detail. And I believe, again, that's what we have here. Basically, he's just given us more information. The other Gospels talk about this one particular blind guy that they want to talk about getting healed. Um, but Matthew says there, there are actually two of them there. Um, and again, I don't, I don't see that as a contradiction, but just a, a different style of storytelling here. So back to the text. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They're crying out to him. In verse 31, the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them. This word that we see again and again, this idea of his guts were moved. He was, he was shaken. He was moved towards them in compassion. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Chapter 21, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Literally, God save us, is what they're shouting when they say Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Father God, we, we ask that you would allow us to see you today in this text, that your Holy, your Holy Spirit would come and, and open our eyes and open our ears so that we would, we would understand who you are, the King that's come for us. Lord, help us to see, we pray in Jesus' name. You might have noticed the, uh, the picture that we have up this morning, uh, and we were just trying to think of, of someone seeing something that other people don't see, or, or really the act of, of looking 
for something. And what I told you earlier is that we have kind of a contrast in here of people that should be able to see seeing the king and people that should be able to see not seeing the king. And we'll really get into that more as the tension and the conflict builds between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's really just starting here. We don't have a lot of it in this text, but that's going to happen more and more in 21, chapter 22, chapter 23. It's just going to go on and get worse and worse. These religious leaders, these insiders in Jerusalem refusing to see the king. While these crowds and these outsiders, these bums and beggars and these people from, from Nazareth and Galilee, recognizing him for who he really is. And we're going to see that more and more. And, and actually in, in the Gospel of Luke, I think it's, it's either Luke or Mark, but one of the other Gospels gives us the story of Zacchaeus. Have you all ever heard of Zacchaeus? Well, he was a wee little man. And, and a wee little man was he. So he had to climb up into this uh, sycamore tree. So that he could see Jesus, okay? And so the picture kind of reminds me of that, too, because that same story happened in this, this complex of events. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to present himself as the true king, some people are seeing him, some people are not. And we have the story in the other gospel of Zacchaeus, you know, trying to see him, wanting to see him, climbing up to be able to look down and see him. And, and that's kind of what we have going on in this text, people seeing Jesus. I was remembering one time when I was, I think I was about 20 years old, I know I was in college and I was going to church, and it was, uh, you know, back in, I guess, the early 90s, and the standard issue for men at church in those days was Dockers. Any men, you remember Dockers? Um, they were just these kind of standard khaki pants that everybody wore, and uh, I'm sure some of you are probably wearing them today, you know, it's just a standard kind of khaki uniform, and for some reason, at that time, I was like, everybody wore these. And uh, so the only way you could really distinguish a man from the waist down was, you know, just size and shape or maybe the difference in shoes. Um, and one time I was wearing Dockers and this little three-year-old girl ran up and just grabbed my leg. And she was just clinging to me and just holding on to me. And, you know, I was a college kid. I wasn't really used to kids around me that much. I was the youngest in my family. So, you know, I'm just kind of like, okay, you know, hello. Kind of patting her on the head. Hi there. You know, I don't know what she's doing grabbing onto me. I didn't really get it. And uh, she's just holding on to me so tight. And then, and then she looks up at me, and, and it's this look like I, I realized then that she was looking for someone different than me. You know, Because as soon as she registered on my face, she just started you know, screaming like bloody murder. Like she was so terrified. And, and I, you know, I wasn't that ugly back then. So, so I thought, okay, now I'm getting it. She, was actually, she thought I was her dad, right? Like I was the same size as her dad, same size legs. We were same, wearing the same doctors. I think we even had the same shoes, you know. So for her little view down here, we, we looked like the same person. So she mistook me for the one that was her security. She mistook me for the one man in her life that was her, her, her daddy, the one who loved her, the one that would take care of her. But then when she realized I wasn't, she just, of course, she came undone, right? She was, she was terrified, and, and we figured it out and got her, got her to her dad. And it was okay. I don't think she's had too much therapy or anything. <laughs> She's kind of working, working through that. Um, but I think we all have done that in a spiritual sense, where we have run and just grabbed hold of these things that we think are, are the thing that's going to save us, right? And we get into these ruts and habits even of doing it again and again, and then we look up and in terror we realize, no, that's not, that's not going to make me happy. That's not the thing that's going to save me. That's not the one I love that I, I thought it was going to be. And like the little three-year-old girl, we, we scream or we're in pain or we're terrified. But in the scriptures today, we see Jesus presenting himself as the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one, and he calls us to cling to him, 
to, to grab onto him and to stop grabbing onto all those other things that we grab onto. And so today in the text, as, as we work through it, we're going to see him presenting himself and calling us to see him. Not exactly like we thought he was, but, but we begin to understand who he really is, and that, I think, will help us to better recognize him and to better cling to him in faith in our own, in our own lives. The first thing that we see as is, is the stories unfold is that he's the merciful king. He's the merciful king. He's not this harsh uh, king that we may think of when we think of God, not this harsh king, but this merciful king. And he's not this distant, aloof king. But he's a king that has moved towards us in compassion. We've talked so many times as we've been going through Matthew about the word compassion and how that really means a movement towards someone in their pain. And so we see Jesus moving towards these, these bums, these uh, blind beggars on the road. It says in 2029, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd was following them. So there was this throng of people. And you need to kind of understand historically what's happening here. Jews are heading to Jerusalem, to the spiritual capital of, of the uh, Israelites, and they're going there to celebrate the Passover. And if you remember, the Passover was this festival they celebrated when they remembered the Exodus and how God had them sacrifice a pure lamb to save them so that they could then be set free and be God's people and be called out in the Exodus and leave Egypt. And so now, as, you know, as it would kind of make sense now when you see it all building up, Jesus is coming into the city, presenting himself as this lamb to be sacrificed during the Passover feast. But they don't get all that sacrifice stuff. They don't get the, all the Passover connection. All they see right now is just the crowd going in to celebrate. It's the Passover. It's a big party. It's a big time when all these people come from all over Israel to celebrate this feast of Passover in Jerusalem. So imagine a city of about 30,000 being swelled up to about 180 or 200,000 People. That's the kind of crowds that are pouring in to the city. So huge crowds following Jesus, going on these you know, trails from city to city, getting into Jerusalem. And then there's a couple of beggars on the side of the road calling out to him. And, and you know it must have been hard to call out to him. Uh, it was difficult probably for him to hear, probably couldn't see them because of the crowd, just the throngs of people all around them. It says in verse uh, 30, two blind men were sitting by the roadside when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. All, all the good Jews knew that someday their king that came back to save them would be a descendant of David and would be like David, the, the king who had a heart after God. Okay, And so when they say Son of David, they're just recognizing in a loose way that he's this Messiah, he's this great king that's come back. Okay, They think at some level he's a Messiah. They must have heard that he's been healing people, and they say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And in verse 31, it says, The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. There are going to be people in your life and voices telling you to just be quiet and to shut up. But when, when you see that Jesus may be your salvation and you want to call out to him, there's going to be people that are going to say, just, just pipe down. Just leave it alone, okay? And, and there may be a voice in your own head, your own voice telling you he doesn't have time He's not interested in me. He's, he's distant. He's aloof. There's this weird video that this other church put together, and they, they had taken these old Jesus movies, and they redubbed it with, like, different voices. And I thought about showing it, but it kind of it offends people sometimes because basically they, they have Jesus saying, like, the wrong things. They have Jesus saying the things that we think 
you know, in our, in our wrongheadedness, we think he might say. They have this interaction with Jesus and Peter, and they're done in like a humorous way, but they have this interaction uh, between Jesus and Peter, and Peter talking about Jesus, hey, how come you left us, and why are you here all alone, and aren't you still our friend? And, and Jesus says something, something along the lines of, well, sure, Peter, I'm your friend. I just don't have time for you. And that's one of those, you know, misconceptions we have about him, right? That, that he's too important for us. Well, sure, I love you, but I really don't want to get close to you, you know. I don't want to really want to spend time. I don't want to be intimately involved in your life. I'm too important for that. And, and we think about that way. We think that way about God often. Because I think not only are there other voices telling us to, to shut up, to be quiet, not to call out to Jesus for mercy, but often we're telling ourselves that. He, he's too busy. He's, he's got a universe to run, right? He doesn't have time to, to come down and enter into my life. But Jesus presents himself and calls us to see him as a merciful king, as this compassionate king that's willing to move into our life, even in our pain. It says in verse 32, Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And it says Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. You know, the Jews had all these rules about cleanliness and washing, and they were very hygienic, you know, some might say even neurotic. And, and they just, you know, they had this huge fear of germs. And here Jesus not only has moved towards them in compassion, but he touches them. These unclean, dirty beggars on the side of the road. And he shows them love. And this is so profound. This is Jesus portraying himself to us, helping us to see what kind of king he is. Not the aloof king that doesn't have time for us, but he's the king that would enter into our life and, and touch us and not be afraid to be intimately involved in our life and to heal us. He restores their sight. He has mercy on them. He has compassion for them. And that's, that's the kind of king that we have. Not, not those misconceptions that you may have or those wrong-headed views of, of a God that's too busy for you, but a God that stops and has compassion, even in your your inability to do anything. I found a picture of, of a blind woman being led by a seeing eye dog because I want us to get and, and feel and, and remember that, that these guys couldn't do anything without being led. They, they couldn't see, and I, I'm assuming they did not have seeing eye dogs in the first century. They didn't, you know, they didn't have that much help. They were completely helpless. They were, they were on their own, and they were completely at his mercy. And Jesus says, I will make time for you. I will enter into your life. I will touch your eyes. I will heal you. I will restore you. And, and I think it's important for us to point out, too, that God still heals us today physically. But the promise and the hope that we have in the gospel is ultimate healing and restoration. I know some of you have stories of how God has healed you from maybe from cancer or maybe from some sickness. But others of you know stories of you also prayed earnestly, and God decided not to. But through faith in Christ, the promise that we have is ultimate healing. So, so when we say that ultimate, the only promise we really have is ultimate healing in heaven, that everything will be made right, that doesn't mean we don't believe that God still heals people today. It just means that we see that that's the, the ultimate reality. That's the treasure that we look forward to, is the kingdom of heaven, is being reunited with him and, and everything being made right. Because, you know, these, these two blind guys... They still got sick and died, right? I mean, all these people that Jesus healed, Lazarus, he rose Lazarus from the dead, and then, you know, Lazarus died again. And, and the promise that we have is ultimate healing. 
is ultimate restoration. And that is a real treasure, a real promise that we look forward to, a real inheritance that we look forward to, to seeing. And I just want to fixate on verse 34 where it says he had compassion. He touched their eyes. And it says immediately they received their sight and what? And followed him. Immediately they followed him. The, the healing wasn't just for their sake, but so then they could follow him and they followed him into the city. And then Jesus continues to reveal himself and to call us to see him. And in this next section, we see him as the prophetic king. We see him as a prophetic king. The story of the Bible, um, everything kind of goes wrong in chapter 3 of the Bible. So you've got this huge book, right? And in chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin. And they're kicked out of the garden. They're kicked out of paradise. But God makes a promise to Eve. And he says, someday a son is going to be born to you that will restore everything. You're, you're going to have a son that will crush evil, that will crush the serpent. And, and Jesus is the answer to that promise. And those promises are, are continued to be unfolded throughout the Old Testament. There's more and more of them made. And we see all these prophecies of, of restoration. And God calls a people to himself. And he, he, he builds this nation, Israel, and says salvation is going to come through you. He tells Abraham, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you and your sons. Um, and then this, this nation sins and rejects God. And God says, I'm going to send you into exile. But he still makes all these prophecies to them especially when they're in exile, and he says, this is not the end. Yes, yes, you're being punished for your sin and for forgetting me, but this is not the end. There's still a plan. Redemption is still going to come. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies. There's all these prophecies and promises made about him, and he's coming, fulfilling them. In 21.1, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on, Mount, on the Mount of Olives, this is basically a mount that was slightly higher than the Temple Mount. So it's this beautiful view of, this, of the temple in the city. And uh, there's this town on the Mount of Olives. And so it's kind of the next town in. And, and it's like the last stop, really, before they get into Jerusalem. And it says, Jesus sent two disciples, in verse 2, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So it's the last big city. He says, go ahead to this little village, and then we're going to work our way into, into Jerusalem, up the hill in Mount Zion. Um, and I've got this colt, this foal, and, and you can go um, untie it. Um, and it says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. All of this was a fulfillment of the scriptures. I don't know about you, but sometimes, especially when I was a kid, and I think maybe it's because I grew up in the 70s, I kind of saw Jesus as a hippie that kind of floated around. And I think a lot of it was the Brett girl hair that he has in a lot of those pictures and kind of the robes and all this weird stuff. And, um, but, but Jesus was on task. He had a mission, right? I mean, he, he was very purposeful here. And as I read this text, really, it makes the most sense to me to, to see it as he'd worked this out. He'd actually talked to the person somehow in that village, and, and they were ready with the donkey. We don't know. I mean, we don't get that much detail here. It could have just been the Holy Spirit, you know telling them, okay, take my donkey. You know, we're not really sure exactly how that played out. But we do know in, in verse 4, it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies. He didn't need a donkey. I mean, he'd been walking his whole ministry, right? It's, it's the last stop before he gets into Jerusalem. He doesn't need a donkey to enter the city, but he's purposefully fulfilling the scriptures that he was born for. 
And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the fulfillments of prophecy happened by accident, right? They happened to him. He was born fulfilling all this prophecy. But we see him deliberately showing himself to his people, saying, I am the one you're looking for, and I'm going to show you specifically what that looks like here. I'm going to show you specifically what kind of king I am. I found a picture of architectural plans, and I was just thinking about um, the idea of if, if, if a project is really important, you, you have plans for it, right? You write out plans. You, you set goals. And, and Jesus is fulfilling the plans that have been set, that have been written by God the Father from eternity past. God, God had this plan worked out. As we said all the way back in Genesis 3.15, we, we hear Jesus announced, there's the son of Eve that's going to be born that's going to fix everything. It's going to make things right. And Jesus is now fulfilling those plans, fulfilling those prophecies that have been written about him. And showing that he is the, the king that fulfills all prophecy. He's the one that we've been waiting for. Sometimes I'm not the best planner. And sometimes that causes conflict with me and my wife. My wife likes things to be very black and white, very clear. And I tend to kind of be like that 70s Jesus, I used to think, you know, that floats, you know, kind of float through life, kind of take things as they come. And as I've grown, I've learned to be a little more deliberate and plan a little, you know, a little better in life. But sometimes when we get into uh, sticky situations or in certain circumstances, my, my wife can be a little nervous with me because I see life as adventure and she sees life as something that should be planned and, and deliberate, right? And, and I think that that's a good reminder to me that, that we can trust Jesus because he does have all those details worked out. I mean, I may be a goofball that, that doesn't know what I'm doing tomorrow, but, but Jesus knows. And, and he's got it worked out, and we can, we can trust him. We, we can feel secure in his hands. We don't have to run to those other things, go cling to these other saviors. We can cling to Jesus because he's, he's working the plan. He is on mission. He, he's, he's fulfilling what he was born for. He's going to give himself in the city of Jerusalem. The last thing that we see is that he is a gentle king. The last thing we see is that he's a gentle king. He, he doesn't uh, come in to conquer, but he comes in to save and to, to sacrifice himself. I found a, uh, a picture here. You've probably seen a million of these. This is a soldier. This is a Civil War soldier. But you've probably seen a million of these soldier on war horse statues, right? Has anyone here ever seen a statue like that? Soldier on a war horse. On any historic town, you generally have one. If you're a part of First Cav, you've seen the real war horses, right? That First Cav has. Um, a soldier looks very powerful when he's on a horse. Just, just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Dallas and we saw some some mounted policemen, and you you know you're just kind of in awe. I mean, the horses are just enormous, and the cop is way up there, especially if you're walking on the street, you're in your park or something. And the horses, like, they're just a big, giant muscle, right? You ever notice, like, they're just these muscles are twitching, you know, their leg muscles and everything. And the horse is just kind of twitching, all that testosterone coursing through its veins. It's just, it's just a huge, powerful muscle, right? But, but this is what Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. <laughs> Jesus chooses a little donkey. You know, and the donkeys, the fur is just long enough. You can't really see the muscle tone real well. And they're kind of funny shaped. And they're kind of little. And they're humble. And uh, Jesus comes in that way. Jesus doesn't come in on the powerful war horse. And, and this wasn't completely unheard of. As a matter of fact, again, he's fulfilling this role as the Davidic king, the son of David. When you look back at the Old Testament, you see that David and his immediate sons and, and their 
their entourage would ride mules, would ride donkeys, as part of as symbolically expressing their humility. I'm sure David had war horses occasionally when he went to battle, because we know David was a stud, and he was always wiping out Philistines and always winning wars. But he would choose to come in and out of the city on a donkey. And as a matter of fact, the picture that, that most people, uh, most rabbis and Jewish teachers would think of when they would read this, this prophecy in Zechariah 9 that Jesus was fulfilling, most of them would, would think of David leaving the city when his son rebelled against him and riding out on a donkey. And they would think of David then coming back to the city as the rightful king, but in, in sadness and in humility because his son had rebelled against him. And now his son was dead and he was brokenhearted. And that was the Jewish picture that most Jews had when they thought of Zechariah 9 and thought of their returning son of David king coming back for them and coming in in humility and in gentleness on a donkey. Let's read the text. In 21.5 it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And uh, this is another variation from the other stories. The other stories emphasize that he rode on, on a foal, on a colt of a donkey that had never been ridden before. So here again, Matthew gives us a little more detail than the other stories. And we would just assume, and people that know more about animals than me, write that, that they would have needed to have the mother donkey to lead the baby donkey through a big crowd. Because otherwise, a, a baby donkey that had never been ridden wouldn't have really been able to make it. would have been too freaked out. So, so here Matthew gives us more detail again than the other gospel accounts that shows us that, that the mother donkey is leading the baby donkey and Jesus is coming in on this gentle, meek, lowly donkey. It says a very large crowd in verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, this means God save us. And they're not necessarily worshiping Jesus as God here, as we see in the New Testament. People's understanding of the reality that Jesus was actually God in the flesh, that, that was an evolving reality that they were getting more and more of. But this was a common saying that they would shout, uh, recognizing that God had sent someone to save them. So they would say, God save us, here's this king that's come to save us. And here he is, and they would, they would uh, shout after him. And they would lay branches and their cloaks in the road. It's kind of like rolling out the red carpet. They didn't just carry around red carpets with them, so they'd grab palm branches and they'd grab cloaks and throw them down. Um, they had actually pretty good paving in a lot of roads back then because of the Roman Empire, but also a lot of roads were just dirty and, and nasty. And so this was a way of honoring Jesus and honoring him as he entered into the city. And so the crowd would, would roll out the red carpet for him. I think the biggest application for us out of this text and out of how Jesus presents himself in humility and the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 is that he doesn't just come in wrath. He doesn't just come in judgment. And for many of us, the way that you grew up, whether you were rebellious and have run from God or whether you were very religious and have tried to do everything right to please God and get him to bless you, either way, we often see God as, as just angry. We see him as, as just the warrior God that wants to, to wipe us out for, for doing wrong. Or if we do wrong, he'll smack us at any moment, right? And that's how a lot of us see God. And I think in a very important application for us here in this text is to see that God comes 
as the gentle savior. Gentle doesn't mean weak. Gentle doesn't mean hippie Jesus. Gentle means he is restraining himself. And actually, next week we're going to see him uh, get pretty angry and drive people out of the temple. So, so it doesn't mean he's weak. It doesn't mean he's afraid. It means he is restraining himself. He is gentle. He humbles himself to serve us and to bring us salvation, to, to give himself. Just earlier in this chapter, in chapter 20, we saw him telling the disciples, we're heading up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to give myself. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, and then I will be raised from the dead. So Jesus doesn't come in as the conquering warrior on the big, muscly war horse. He comes in gentleness and meekness as the Davidic king that is the, the king that has a heart after God. Well, as we conclude, I wanted to just look at the last, uh, the last two verses in 21 and 21, uh, 10 and 11. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, then the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And literally that word stirred is the same word shaken that's used elsewhere for the earthquakes. So the whole city is just shook up. They're, they're freaked out because this big commotion, all these outsiders, these Galileans, these people from, from the north that, that weren't the real good religious people, but they were the outsiders that kind of lived out among the Gentiles in Galilee. They were coming in in this big crowd saying that, that their Galilee boy was the Messiah. They said, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And of course, that just makes it worse, right? The, the religious leaders don't realize that he was actually born in Judea, that he was the fulfillment of all those prophecies. But that he came from this place where the, where the country folk are, or where the outsiders were, the people that weren't religious enough. He's with those people. He came from that place and he comes as an outsider and they don't, they don't recognize him. I remember uh, it was a few years ago, about four years ago, we were taking my daughter to preschool. So she was four years old and it was me and my other two older children and then the four-year-old. And there are a couple of specks that we saw out in the distance as we were driving. And the four-year-old said, those are hot air balloons. She recognized them. Those are balloons. And we were like, okay, you know, we'll see. You know, you don't see hot air balloons in Central Texas very often. So I was thinking, all right, we'll see. You know, I thought it was a plane or a couple of helicopters or something. And, and as we drove about another half mile closer, we could see that they were actually hot air balloons. That she could just see farther than we could, this little four-year-old little girl. And then she started describing them to us. Then she started saying, that one is green, and, and that one, you know, has red and white stripes, and, and, you know, so now we can barely see that they're hot air balloons as we got closer, but we still can't really see the colors or recognize any patterns on them, but she, she's given us more detail now, and we drove another half mile or another mile, and then we could see that she was right, that she could see what we couldn't see, and I think, I think often that's true in the spiritual life, that, that there are people that are humble that we don't think are smart enough or big enough or, or strong enough to see these truths about Jesus. And that's what Jesus portrays for us in, in these stories, that these outsiders see him. These people that weren't religious, they saw him as the king they've been waiting for. That these blind men who can't even see can see him. I mean, the blind men don't even have sight, yet they can see him with eyes of faith, and they know that he is the Savior that they've been waiting for. And my challenge to you guys is this morning to, to see the king, not to suppress the truth, not to push down uh, what you think he is or what he might be because it doesn't fit 
your agenda, but be willing to see him as he presents himself, as he shows himself to us as the Savior that we have been waiting for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you gave yourself to us. We thank you that you're our Savior, that you are our King. And I pray that we would have eyes to see. I pray that we would stop clinging to those other things. Stop running to those habits. Stop living in those ruts. But that we would see you and accept you for what you've done. We thank you that you gave yourself for us on the cross. We thank you that you took our sin on you so that we didn't have to pay the price. Lord, if there are people here this morning that are, that are seeing that for the first time, I pray that they would accept you with joy. If you've always thought it was about what you could do or shouldn't do for God, I hope that this morning you're seeing for the first time that it's about who he is and what he has done for you, that he is a merciful God, that he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies, that he is the gentle king that doesn't just come in judgment. Although he is angry at sin, he poured out that anger on himself. He absorbed the full wrath of God on the cross and gave his life for you. If you're seeing that for the first time, I just would encourage you to just tell God. You can just tell him silently right where you are. I see you and I accept you. I realize I'm a sinner and I've been trying to do it in my own strength. I realize I need you. And you tell him thank you for forgiving you and setting you free. Lord, we thank you for loving us and pray that you would turn us loose to be your people in this community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You just missed it.